Hey everybody, and thank you for joining me for my series, Simple Steps for Studying the Bible. We are on lesson number five, and we're looking at Acts 6 today. So the three steps are observation, interpretation, and application. And so for every chapter, we've been going through and doing those three simple steps. And so as we begin today on Acts 6, you may want to pause and read the first seven verses and make observations of your own. That means become curious about what you're reading, make comments about what you observe, ask why or when or where or what is going on. And then we'll see uh, as we continue to read if those questions are answered. If not, then during the interpretation part, I may just answer your questions. So let's begin. We're looking at Acts 6, verses 1 through 7 to start with. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So the 12 called a meeting of all the believers. They said, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word and not running a food program. And so brothers select seven men who are well respected and are full of the spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert to the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. So God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted also. So now we have read the first seven verses, and as we were reading, I hope you were making some observations of your own and maybe become curious about what that term meant or this term or who were those people. And so that's what you, you do on your own. You make your observations. And then uh, if you choose, you can go back and do your own research and study to do the interpretation. <coughs> if you don't want to do that, that's what I love to do. And that's what I do in my lessons. I do the research and homework and pour into the scripture and then do the interpretation part and then we get to the application. So I'll probably be weaving in and out of interpretation and application. Well, let's look then at the beginning. What we know is the work of God's kingdom through the early Christian community was highly successful, but they had their share of problems. We read they were multiplying, and this lets us know that the early church, through their growth, must have been organized. They knew how many had been saved. They met together in specific places at specific times. We've read that throughout the book of Acts. Money and goods were collected, and they were distributed to those in need and sin was confronted and dealt with. So all of these let us know that there was some level of organization. 
all the while there have been attacks on the church and Satan was coming after them on many different fronts. He has attempted many forms of direct opposition and intimidation and he tried to to uh, corrupt the church from within. Well, these strategies were all unsuccessful in either stopping or slowing down the work of the church. Well, now Satan is taking a new approach and he's hoping to divide and conquer by raising one group of Christians against another. This is another internal problem. And it's coming between these two groups. They're referred to as those who speak Hebrew and those who speak Greek. So I want to introduce some terms to you. First, the Hebrews and who they are and the Hellenists. Well, the Hebrews were those Jews who were probably the local Jews there in Jerusalem, and they were more inclined to embrace the Jewish culture. And mostly from uh, that area surrounding Jerusalem and into Judea. Uh, the Greek speaking Christians were probably Jews from other areas in the Roman Empire. Uh, remember, the Jews had been dispersed away from Israel. And then those who had returned now had brought with them some habits and practices and the culture of the areas where they had been living. And these were called the Hellenists. It's the Greek word Hellene, and it just means Greek. And we're not sure of the origin further than that. But the Hellenists now were those from speaking Greek and from a place other than the Jerusalem and Israel area. Well, to oversimplify, Hebrews tended to think of the Hellenists as unspiritual and those who were compromising with the Greek culture. And then the Hellenists were thinking of the Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. So you can just see right there this continuum of ideology and beliefs and practices that they were dealing with. Now, nothing in here says that it had to do with the theology of Christianity at this point. Well, but there's also another underlying issue. There is an ethnic situation. The Hellenists, those from outside of Jerusalem and Judea, Israel, were despised by many because they thought that these Hellenists had been contaminated by Gentiles. And Gentiles means the non-Jew. But the truth was that both the Hebrews and the Hellenists were coming to faith of Christianity in great numbers. But they were looking at each other as the other. It's often that suspicion or fear of the other causes divisions even today, whether it's in the church or outside the church, the fear of the other. Well, so there was already a natural suspicion between these two groups, and Satan tried to take advantage of, of that suspicion and fear and to create a division between the two groups. Well, it's important to remember that even though they had these titles, uh, the titles of uh, Hebrews and Hellenists, they were Christians. They were followers of Jesus. They were all from a Jewish background. So apparently some of the Christians from the Hellenistic background believed that the widows among the Hebrew Christians 
received better care. And so this favoritism was probably unintentional, but we know that Satan loves to use an unintentional wrong to begin a conflict. So the Hebrews were right in their hearts in that they were trying to reach out to everyone and the Hellenistics were right in their facts that not everyone was being reached. And so these are perfect conditions for a church splitting conflict. Well, what things split up churches? Well, for that matter, what things split up families and groups of people? Very often it's misunderstandings or unintentional oversights. And so how are they handled? Well, some are not. And, and as a result, this great divide begins. People take sides and then there seems to be a war of words. See, when imperfect people get together, disagreements and hurt feelings and misunderstandings are inevitable. And if our expectations are too high, then disappointment is going to happen. And that can cause further feelings of hurt and resentment. Sin enters and conflict affects the work that God is doing. Well, a church division might happen, uh, sometimes when people then begin to manipulate the story, they begin to manipulate other people and just to serve their own good ends. And, and it may be that there's pride. There's pride in rule keeping and those who do not keep the same rules are mistreated. Or it may be that one interpretation of something that is non-essential and really obscure like the color of the carpet is emphasized and used as a, a measure for those who are included or excluded. Or it could be that somebody wants to take leadership over from the pastor or deacons or elders and they begin to rally people together to get on their side. Well, sadly, differences of opinions, even regarding music and the style of worship will cause divisions in a church. And this is how Satan works to get into the church. It's what was happening in the early church. Well, the excuses for the conflict are numerous, but they all come from the same root cause, pride and selfishness. And on top of this, there is the problem of lack of forgiveness. So how do you sort through it? Well, divisions in churches or in families or any group is really best handled through strong leadership. And that's what we see in our passage. Our apostles had spiritual wisdom and they quickly handled the situation. And here is what is important in handling divisions within families and churches, that there needs to be a repentance. Whoever is in the wrong, even a percentage of wrong, needs to claim that and acknowledge that. And then extending grace and mercy and forgiveness. And there needs to be a lot of humility in the situations within churches and families. Sometimes that's missing. And going to God for direction and wisdom is so important. This is what the apostles did to handle the situation. See, they even from the beginning explained what their mission was, what their own role and responsibility in ministry was. They said they needed to remain faithful to their central calling, and that is prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
They said it would be wrong for them to spend their time administering practical needs. Well, and they needed something very practical, but they knew it wasn't their role to do that. They needed leaders for a food bank, a ministry to all the widows. In a church, in a ministry of any kind, leadership roles are so critical. In our own ministry that I lead called WOW, Women of Worth, we have 34 officers, and they're divided among four different categories that were so prevalent in the early church. One of them is support, and those who do support are our leader of membership is Susan, and she works alongside Lisa. Who, who works with the group leaders. And so the group leaders contact all the members. See, it all filters down. That's what the early church did. And then there's the support area of class organized, who prepare, organizers who prepare the room. And then our other support team would be our care and share team who care for the sick. And then we have our communication team who send out email prayer requests and praises. And so that's all in the area of support. And organizations need that in order to spread the good news of the gospel. And then we have another area, it's a service area. It's where we have mission and service coordinators. And our next area is the social area. And those are uh, areas for activities and special interest. And those who coordinate our brunches and our lunches and our dinners and retreats. And see, all of that is important for a, a ministry outreach and inreach. And then there is the area of study. And like the apostles, I love to focus on the area of study, leading and teaching God's word. And I'm only able to do that uh, if I have the help of all the 34 other officers who work in this ministry. This is what the apostles were saying when they said they needed to spend time in prayer and in ministry of the word. Well, these apostles showed great leadership as they let God guide them to take the right steps to head off the crisis. They first met with the ones who had the complaint, the Hellenist. So it was as if the powerful were listening to the powerless. And then they listened to their complaints and acknowledged the problem. They didn't just listen and then turn away. And then they worked out the guidelines. We read that the apostles told the people to seek out from among you seven men. The apostles, the, the 12, spoke to the general group of believers. That would be the multitude of disciples. And they pursued the solution with a lot of communication and input from the people. They even asked, probably especially those who felt wrong, to, wronged, to suggest men of good character to do this work. This was such a wonderful way to solve the problem. They didn't just throw the complainers out. They didn't divide into two congregations. <laughs> they didn't shun the unhappy people. They didn't just form a committee and discuss the problem to death. No, they acted very proactively to solve the problem. They established the qualifications. They focused on the character of the men who were going to be chosen. The apostles were more concerned about their internal quality than their outward appearance or their image. So the idea 
uh, behind full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom is that these men were to be both spiritually minded and practically minded. Spiritual sense and common sense was what was needed. Well, they chose seven men. We're not sure why seven. It was a common number that was used even back into the Old Testament times. It could have been that they assigned one person for each day of the week. <coughs> and that the final decision was going to rest with the apostles. But they asked the believers, the congregation, to nominate because Scripture says, seek out among you. But the decision really rested with the apostles. This was not an exercise of congregational government, though the apostles wisely wanted and valued the input from the congregation. Such good leadership we see here. And so it is the selection of the deacons, and we have the reading of the names in this passage. Notice that Stephen is the first name, and he is given a full description, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Must have been an enthusiastic believer from the beginning. We're going to look at what becomes of Stephen, both in this lesson and the one that will follow in two weeks. Well, what, what we know by not just observing, but by digging in and researching, we know that these seven men had Greek names, indicating they were probably Hellenist. So the people and the apostles showed great sensitivity to those who were offended, the Hellenists, by appointing them to be the very ones that would help take care of the widow's distribution. Notice the people nominated the men and the apostles approved them by laying hands on them after praying for God's guidance and his approval. Considering all that could have gone wrong, when Satan tried to attack through division, everyone involved deserves a lot of credit. First of all, those who had the complaint, the Hellenists, they did the right thing. They made their need known. Instead of complaining and whining, they trusted their need with the apostles, who are the ones who could do something about it. Uh, then those of the other party, the Hebrews, did the right thing. They recognized the Hellenists, and they knew that there was a legitimate need, and they also trusted the uh, solution with the apostles. And then we see the seven chosen men did the right thing. They accepted the call to this duty, this service, that certainly was not one of the most glamorous jobs. And then the apostles did the right thing. They responded to the need without distracting themselves from the central task. Notice they got on it quickly so they could solve the problem and move forward with ministry needs. The men were chosen and then ordained and com com commissioned. And that was done through prayer and the laying on of hands. Now the laying on of hands was a, an ancient Jewish practice and it set the men apart and acknowledged their spiritual wisdom. This is often a practice today in ordination services. I know it was with great joy I got to see my brother ordained to the deacon ministry and hands were laid on him and men prayed over him and it was a beautiful symbol, uh, much like what we see here with Stephen. 
And the result is the word of God spread. Because this situation was handled with wisdom and sensitivity to those who were offended, a potentially divisive issue was diffused and the gospel continued to go forward. Even a great many priests came to faith in Jesus. Satan's strategy had failed. He tried to divide the church and it did not work. But Satan's second strategy also failed. The apostles were not distracted from the focus of ministry that God had for, for them, the focus on the word of God and on prayer. So their good work resulted in growth in the church. In a few weeks, their ministry had infiltrated the entire city and all levels of society. Remember, it hasn't been that long since Jesus ascended to heaven, telling them to go and minister in all the world. And it is what's happening. The ministry is spreading. This, this one shared with that one, who shared with this one, who shared with that one, and on and on. This one invited someone, and that one invited someone each one sharing with one. This is the way that our WOW Bible study has grown from 12 participants about 16, 17 years ago to over 200 active participating women in our ministry. It has grown because one invited another who invited another who invited another. And then some out there were packing all the rows with the invitations that you had sent out. Well, that takes care of the first seven verses in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts 6. Uh, let's look at verses 8 through 15. And this is when Stephen is arrested. So I'm going to read those verses. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. At this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. So I hope again you were observing what was read and maybe thinking of some questions or making comments about what, what you heard. So let's look at the interpretation. What we see is that God has done great wonders and signs through the apostles, but also through others like Stephen, one of the servants chosen to help the widows. God used Stephen because he was full of faith and power. And then we have that all-powerful word in scripture called but. But one day some men from the synagogue of freed slaves. So 
this may have been something you were curious about. This was a group of former Jewish slaves who had been freed by Rome and had had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. So they'd formed their own meeting place. Well, these men secretly induced others to lie about the apostles. They were opponents of Stephen. And, and you know, they realized they couldn't win a fight fairly. And so they resorted to using lies and secret strategies to shape popular opinion against Stephen. And one version says it this way, and in those days there arose a murmuring. We all know how that sounds, don't we? The whispering, the talking about others behind their back or right in front of them, uh, murmuring. These lies were another act of Satan. We always need to be on the lookout for the ways Satan is going to attack us personally or a church or a ministry. We read in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We do not want to be ignorant. We want to know and be prepared for the ways that he may come against us. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says, for we wrestle against spiritual wickedness in high places. So the people were stirred up. Uh, because of the good work that the apostles and Stephen were doing, uh, the religious leaders, the religious scholars were all stirred and had resorted to the murmurings. They grabbed Stephen and took him before the high council. Now, that is the Sanhedrin, which was ruled by two major parties, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The dominant part of this council is the Sadducees. Now, they only accepted the, and studied the writings of Moses. That would be the book of Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. So what they were hearing and understanding, misunderstanding, I should say, was that someone, Stephen, was speaking against Moses, and that inflamed them. And it, the scripture says, blaspheming Moses and even God and speaking against the temple and against the laws of Moses. And then they read, they understood that, that this Jesus of Nazareth was going to destroy the temple and all of our customs. So do you hear, they felt threatened, threatened. Now it was all wrong what they were understanding, but they were misinformed. Now let's look at the truth of what Jesus taught, and then I'll tell you the claims of the Sadducees. So Jesus was greater than Moses. That is the truth. That's what he was preaching. These were heard as blasphemous words against Moses. Stephen preached, Jesus is God. They heard, the opponents heard, this is blasphemy against God. Stephen preached, Jesus was greater than the temple. Well, they heard blasphemy against a holy place. And then he preached, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. That was heard as blasphemy against the law. Stephen preached, Jesus was greater than religious customs and traditions. What they heard was Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy the place and all of our customs. Wow, 
they uh, were very threatened about what Stephen was going to do. So as they were proclaiming all of the blasphemy and saying what he was going to do and the fear of what he might do to the holy temple and to the word of God, uh, they were really blasting him. And so just imagine being in a court of law and, and you get blasted one thing after another with lies and how you might react to it. Well, what scripture says that everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became bright as an angel's. Stephen was on trial before the highest religious court he could face, examined by honored, educated, and powerful men. He had been falsely accused, and he seemed to have lost some popular support because of the fear. The council, though, could not help but stare at him, for his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen's face didn't have that mild, soft, angelic look that we see in some of the paintings, and nor was it a look of stern judgment or anger. Instead, his face reflected perfect peace, perfect confidence of someone who knows and trusts in God. His face had the same reflected glory that Moses had when he beheld God. You know, his expression, I think, was one of the greatest rebukes or telling offs <laughs> that I have ever heard. What they're saying is evil, you're evil, you're a blasphemer, you've blasphemed this and that. And he's sitting there with a holy face. Can you imagine the rebuke? Whoever is seeing him says there's something wrong here. <laughs> See, this is a face of an angel, a holy angel of God manifesting the glow of God. So let's get in our heads that this is not a smirk he has on. It's not a smug grin. It, it's not a self-satisfied smile. You know, we get those when we think we're, we have the upper hand or we have the real story. No, his was a glow of God's peace, very different from a smug look. You know, how does your face look? What does your face reflect? Especially in those times when you've been judged or hurt or called out on something. What do people see? when they look at you. You know, we really want people to behold us with what we can call an aesthetic blessing. It has nothing to do with our physicality and how our face is shaped and the color of our eyes or hair. No, it's a beauty of holiness we want people to see. We want people to see the beauty of Christ flowing through us. There is a distinguished Bible scholar from the 19th century. His name is J.B. Lightfoot, and he was described by one of his devoted students as startlingly ugly, a stout little man with a grotesque figure and a squint. But that same student said that Lightfoot 
was the best man I have ever encountered, and I say this deliberately after the experience of many years. In a day or two, his face appeared the most beautiful and loving thing imaginable. Isn't it a beautiful image to see that someone could look at us and not see the color of our hair or a droopy chin or eyes that are squinting or a mouth that's all gnarled up, but see that we are glowing with the inner peace of Christ. You know, our scripture reading in Acts 6 presents Stephen on trial, and he's on trial because he is a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, and the evidence was indisputable. He was a faithful follower of Jesus, and that trial that he faced might have brought fear or terror, but not for Stephen. Stephen was at perfect peace. His face was not filled with fear or terror because he knew his life was in God's hands and that Jesus never forsakes his people. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do give us perfect peace. Help us to trust you in our own trials and our tribulations. Help us to have the face of an angel because we want to glow with your love and your peace and your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in. I'll see you next time.